Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. It's our custom to introduce ourselves before we hear from our speaker. And I will introduce him at the end of our circle. I always like to suggest that you take a breath after the name you've just heard so you can have a moment to digest and not to feel like we need to rush through. I'm Joe Boot. I'm Amos. I'm Tom. We decided to pick. Justin. David. Sergio. Our speaker today, find my little cheat sheet, is someone who is familiar to us as a member of the Sangha, and also um, part of the Saturday group that feeds the youth at Larkin Street, uh, Bob McMillan, McMullen, excuse me. From his childhood in a devout American Baptist household through his am I reading the right one? Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> through his coming out experience and years working with gay nonprofits, through his recent brief stint working for a Roman Catholic monastic community, Bob will share how he has tried to use these very different life experiences in his pursuit of personal insight and spiritual health. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> coincidentally, I didn't realize that uh, uh, that I was going to be uh, uh, receiving the uh, uh, the introduction from you. But uh, a, a few weeks uh, a few weeks back, Michael and I attended um, a a, a, a uh, workshop. I guess it was of one of uh, Joe's new pieces. Called Hush, is that what it's called? And um, and while I was watching that, I got um, an inspiration for the direction I wanted to go with uh, with some of, of what I'm going to be saying this morning. Um, 
And I encourage all of you who have not taken advantage of the opportunity to experience what Joe has to offer in a relatively personal way because you have immediate access to the person who's actually um, uh, initiating the creative process. And I know for myself it's been a very rich experience to be able to uh, see what Joe has to say and, uh, and then talk with him about what it means and uh, how it relates to him and, and his journey. So I, I have really appreciated that. Um, my experience, uh, a lot of what he talks about in Hush, the thing that opened up for me is how, how different my life experience had perhaps been from his own. Um, I've, uh, I'm going to read most of this and then, and then later on I'm going to go off a script a little bit because I realized that there were some things that I just really didn't know how to address um, uh, by being prepared in advance. Uh, I have concluded after a lifetime of reflection that by and large the factors and influence that's influences that have framed my attitude towards myself and towards the world I live in have been a function of luck. I look around me and I see others who have faced many of the same or similar challenges that life presented to me, who have come away from those experiences with a much more pessimistic view of life. My goal this morning is to share some of what has happened to me that has caused me to feel particularly fortunate in light of what might have happened. I was born in 1946 as part of the first wave of what we all know well as the baby boom. My mother's family were American Baptists, and my father's Methodists and Transcendentalists. The combination of these influences created a devout adherence to healthy ethical and moral values. But they also created a somewhat looser adherence to those elements of conservative Christianity that most of us would characterize as irrational. While many of the people my parents associated with were blindly conservative, we were taught to distrust religious fanaticism while also learning to respect what others believed regardless of how different it was from our religious principles. We were also taught to respect other ethnic groups and cultural traditions. Diversity was cherished, even though it was rarely practiced in our white-red world. I don't think the way my parents taught us to think was particularly different from the experience of many kids I grew up with. And I was aware when I was growing up that my generation had been given a lot of permission to test new waters and to challenge the way people had behaved and thought in the past. Today, my family is biracial, multi-ethnic, and accepting of virtually all religious traditions. Even my emerging sexual orientation proved to be a non-event. My father had a lesbian aunt, and much of my early adulthood was spent in the company of a gay cousin with whom, to quote my mother, you have a lot in common. <laughs> uh, while those things in common were not specified, it was pretty clear that the main priority was for me to feel at home in my own skin. My family was progressive in a context that discouraged outward expressions of opinions, beliefs, and I would guess also orientations. And while my brothers and I are doubtless more progressive than my parents were, 
we are in many ways no less disinclined to publish our opinions abroad unless asked. When as a te teenager I began to realize that boys and men were my preferred sexual focus, I did what I had learned to do when confronted with something I was not familiar with. I bought books and checked books out of the library on homosexuality. One of my first confrontations with my mother on the issue of my sexual orientation was when she found a book secreted away under my mattress. Typically, I was able to distract her probing by insisting that my interest was academic, which at that early age, it indeed essentially was. To this day, I have an inclination learned at home to distance myself even from myself by exploring my motivations intellectually rather than emotionally. I had already learned as a child how vulnerable one could be on an, on an emotional plane. I even found myself engaging friends and teachers in discussions about what was not yet sexual orientation in a detached way. In college, I had a much better opportunity to explore my tastes firsthand because I had easy access to Hollywood and West Hollywood. I knew already that these places were where I could test my wings. For the first three or four years, my sexual experiences were singularly unfulfilling. In retrospect, I realized that most of those men, all quite a bit older, were sexual predators incapable of even considering what I might want or need. So it was relatively easy for me to forestall any consideration of how this life might fit into my life as a whole. When I was roughly 19, I was arrested by the police in Hollywood, but not booked. The officers, stopped me, the officers who stopped me made me promise to see a psychotherapist as soon as possible. Uh, when I did at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute, I was told by the counselor it's not your problem, it's society's problem. Still highly adherent to the religious and ethical traditions I had grown up with, while I knew I was gay, I also knew I ethically could not subject some woman my age to participate in my conundrum, and I broke up with the woman I had dated since high school. Upon graduation from college, I decided to go to an American Baptist seminary. Being a child of the times, my tenure at seminary was tempered by anti-war activism and a profound commitment to the civil rights movement. I did volunteer work for the Black Panthers and aggressively and even religiously verbalized my doubts about God and the church. It is not surprising then that at the end of my first year, all the forces at war within me resulted in a minor psychotic break. A significant part of this experience was the realization that I was living a lie. No one knew I was gay, and because of my highly ethical worldview, I couldn't live with this lie. The faculty at the seminary encouraged me to explore my sexual orientation and to share my discovery, or rather public admission, with others. By 1969, I found myself at the forefront of a movement I didn't even know existed, the coming out movement. Realizing a career in the church was not possible, I left seminary and began to immerse myself in the culture of my times. I should take a moment to also point out that there was another reason for me to leave seminary. 
I had come to the conclusion that the path to the Christian life was to give away all I had and to serve my fellow man. It was pretty clear to me already that I was just not cut out for that kind of commitment. To this, to this day, I believe that, that that is the true nature of Christianity. And I understand that the church turned its back on that vision because it is in, an impossibility for just about everyone. In other words, in my worldview, there is no functioning Christian community with the possible exception of some, but hardly all, cloistered religious communities. After living, leaving seminary, I went in a different direction. I consumed copious quantities of the drugs of the day, and I began to explore the sexual cornucopia that was Los Angeles in the early 1970s. One of my first discoveries was that my two closest friends from high school were also gay and had come out through their own journeys of discovery. We rejoined forces as we assisted each other and placed stumbling blocks in each other's way. This brings my story to roughly 1973, and the, 30, and the 40 years since that juncture have been similarly characterized by taking risks while enjoying the company of an angel on my shoulder. Until 1973, I probably would have suggested that the journey had been a difficult one, and it has only been through introspection that I've come to realize that it was a comparative cakewalk. If I were inclined to see life as guided by the hand of another, I would do so, because nothing ever happened to me that I wasn't prepared to deal with. Even though it's difficult for me to recognize life challenges as lessons prepared especially for me, I can hardly help seeing my life's journeys as designed to enrich me and to make me inclined to celebrate everything that has occurred. It has also taught me to behave, to, uh, to behave the way my parents would have wanted me to behave, ethically with an eye to open-mindedness, a forgiving nature, and appreciation for the blessings that came my way. It has even made me disinclined to pass judgment either on those who have mistreated me or on institutions like the church that have disguised, disguised the best they have to offer by making the most exalted messages unrecognizable and meaningless. The next 10 years were eventful, and I can see today that mostly I just wandered trying to find it, figure out what I was supposed to do and where I was supposed to be. In 1984, I was lucky enough to manage a significant career change from federal government service to nonprofit management. Nonprofit management. The federal career was soul crushing, and while my 30 years working in the nonprofit sector have often been difficult and has challenged my self-concept, it was also extraordinarily fulfilling. Initially, I worked for fine arts organizations, but after being laid off in the early 90s because of the recession at that time, I found a place working for what is uh, often billed as the largest gay and lesbian organization in the world. Uh, uh, Terry Miller, who's with us today, and I met each other in 1994. We worked in the development department at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center, so it's uh, especially meaningful to me that he uh, he's with us uh, this morning. The LA Gay and Lesbian Center had then a $30 million budget 
and provided scores of different services to gay men, lesbians, questioning youth, and transgendered men and women. I ended up working at the center for eight years, and I learned a great deal about how a healthy community goes about identifying critical services and delivering them. I was hired as the major gifts director in 1994, and then the development director, and then when the development director left in 1998, I was invited to replace him. I served for another four years. Many of you are doubtless familiar with the story of the California AIDS ride firing the agency that managed the event that started uh, that started the event now known as AIDS Life Cycle. I was at the helm of the development department, the LA Gay Lesbian Center, during that rocky time, and I worked closely with our colleagues at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, who partnered with us to create an independent event. One outcome of that rupture with Pilata Teamworks was that Pilata had a restraining order placed on the center's ability to raise money for the event. The restraining order was in place until our court date with Pilata two months later, and the result was a $2 million shortfall in funding for the event. Ultimately, we had to lay off over 50 staff members. It was one of the most difficult things I have ever had to do in my life. I would be remiss if I didn't add at this point that the reason for the rupture with Pilata was not fraud, misappropriation of funds, or any other illegal actions on his part or his company's part. It was because Pilata continued to budget for revenue that was in excess of what we knew the event could earn. They needed to do this in order to maintain the cost increases that they had every year. The rupture was purely a matter of two entities having a different view of how the event was to be managed. As you doubtless know, this past year, the AIDS life cycle raised more money than it has ever raised. I do take some satisfaction in knowing that what the two agencies have today would not have been possible without the difficult decisions that were made in 2001 and 2002. After leaving the center, I had the privilege of working again in the gay community for Stop AIDS Project. And while that relationship ended sadly too, I had a wonderful time working for the agency and getting a much better idea of what HIV prevention is all about. Those of you uh, who have lived through the AIDS crisis in San Francisco in the 1980s are doubtly aware of the amazing program for HIV prevention that was created. In the late 80s, the HIV infection rate dropped from about 18% a year to under 2% a year. It is arguably one of the miracles of public action for public health in the world. I was very proud to have had the uh, honor to have worked there. I recently retired from my nonprofit career, and I have the great good fortune to not really need to work anymore. I'm not sure if I, what I want to do with, for the rest of my life, perhaps just relax, but I'm guessing that I will find some new passion to pursue. Uh, GBF entered my life soon after I left Stop AIDS Project, and I'm very pleased to have returned to my home here since leaving my last work assignment. I know that the final years of this life will not be carefree, but I am hopeful that I will continue to find ways to make my life productive, even as I face new and more 
difficult challenges. Um, the the thing I, I obviously sort of I've, I've skated over was, um, and I really didn't know um, how it would be possible to address was uh, the entire period of the 1980s and the early 1990s when, as we know, we went through um, a, a, uh, a nightmare health crisis. Um, there's a, a term in, I guess it's a philosophical term, but something I learned when I was in seminary called third evil. Uh, it's evil that doesn't have any, it's, it's, it doesn't come from an individual or from, from some action. It's something, it's an evil that is, that's impersonal, that attacks an individual or a community. And if there ever was a third evil, it was, uh, it was AIDS in the, in the 80s and 90s. I I don't know. Yes. What, what is the third? Third. How do you spell it? I think it's S E R D. S E R. What does that mean? Um, just that, 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 the, the definition that, that we got at the time was that it, it, it meant evil that does not come from man's activities okay. or uh, or from uh, other gods or whatever. Okay. It's, it's it's something oh, okay. that's impersonal. Thanks. Uh, at any rate, um, I. Uh, it has continued to elude me how to place uh, that entire experience in some sort of, of meaningful context. Um, I, uh, I, I did go through a really, really bad period in my life in the late 90s when I realized that by not coming to terms with it that I had essentially checked out on life and uh, had abandoned hope, if you will, and went to a therapist for a while, uh, actually only one session, and and at and just walking into the therapist's office immediately, I knew what the problem was. Oh, I haven't coped. I have never. I never ever came to terms with uh, all of these uh, lives that were lost. So um, I still have not figured out how that factors into my life's experience. It it seems so um, pointless and meaningless. Um, as I. Um, the other thing that I sort of couldn't put my head around and, and uh, uh, um, verbalize uh, on paper was where I go from here. I sort of, in, in many ways, I find myself at the same place I was when I was at seminary, where uh, I feel like I, I want to do something. Um, I, I want a mission. I want a, a purpose. And I'm not quite sure what that, uh, what that is. I, for, for most of my life, my dream was to be like you, to be an artist. And, um, and I think I sort of, and I, but I have come to recognize the fact that as much as I might hope to be an artist, that I'm really not an artist. Um, or if I am an artist, I'm a poor artist. <laughs> and so um, uh, can I be satisfied um, creating Bad art. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if that's something that will uh, provide provide me with with very much personal satisfaction. Uh, but um, uh, that is the um, that is a place where I find myself today. I'm glad I I'm glad I have this environment. Uh, I know that uh, that the company of, of all of you and uh, of, of of meditation uh, will assist me in. Uh, finding answers to some of those questions in the uh, in the years ahead. Yes. I just, could you speak a little more about your spiritual journey? 
you know, you had your upbringing, you went to seminary, right. you're, I guess you're a Buddhist or you're a Protestant Buddhist or whatever. So what, what is that drew you to Buddhism and those sorts of things? Right. Um, I don't believe in a, in a, a, I don't believe in God, if you will. Um, I, I, because of my experience probably, I am very resistant to anything that starts to feel like a form. Uh, because my whole life was about form. And, uh, and once I broke that um, um, cage, um, I'm, I'm very aware, and as a matter of fact, those of you who know me well know that I like, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the minute the minute that I'm supposed to do something a particular way, I start you know trying to find my exit, uh, because it's just it's just um, I'm I'm so um, if you will I'm afraid of being lied to again, uh, and 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 that's that's an overstatement because I don't um, because as I as I said. I found a lot of really, really good stuff in my spiritual journey. I had to look for it, though. I had to pan for it uh, because mostly it was dirt. And uh, uh, and 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 I, mean, and I don't think that my experience is any different than anybody else's experience. I think that um, I think the thing that I was lucky about <clears throat> was that I learned to not accept what was given to me. That I was told. To be critical, uh, it was mostly my father, more certainly more than my mother. My father was a very critical thinker, and uh, <clears throat> he encouraged us. From I, I, as a matter of fact, I, re I remember having an experience when I couldn't have been more than ten or eleven years old, and getting into an argument with him about something, and having an epiphany at that moment of realizing, oh, knowledge is power. And that, that, the, that the, the minute that you really understand the truth, that you get a hold of a piece of truth, that you're, that you're a little bit more powerful than you were before that point. And, um, and again, those of you who know me well know that I'm a, I'm a glutton for information and power. I have to be, you know, I, uh, I, uh, one of the things I, I have a tendency to resist <clears throat> is anything that's not food, you know, anything that looks like dessert, I, you know, I have a tendency to steer away from because I'm, I'm very uh, um, um, compelled to try to find information about what's, what's, this, what's this entire thing all about? What's this process all about? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Um, and, but, and then the Buddhism though, so what drives this? Well, it's the meditation. It's the meditation. One hundred percent. It's the meditation. That's why I do. None of. Uh, as a matter of fact, to be very honest with you, I've read a lot of the books, and I and often about four, three or four uh, pages into a chapter, I hit a brick wall because it gets formalized, and I go, you know, I can't get there. You know, I'm not going to be able to get there. It's too. It's too structured. Uh, I am, and it's not that I it's not that I know that it's wrong it's just that I distrust it uh, because I've been there before you know because I, I've been down that path uh, and I and as a matter of fact I may be I'm, uh, I very well may be missing out on, on something because I'm I'm so um, I've got blinders on I 
about that. So, uh, uh, yes. Um, like you, first of all, thank you uh, for telling uh, your story uh, of your path. Uh, I'm a leading edge baby boomer uh, like you. Uh, I'm uh, facing retirement and with a bit of trepidation as to what, where I want to put my energies into. And uh, a couple of things you said that were really that, that, you know, that resonated with me. The, uh, the years of the AIDS crisis, I did have a partner in it uh, directly for a while, but I lost uh, basically all the friends that I had, as many of us did. Uh, and interestingly, uh, even though I'm uh, with a well, Supreme Court decision, I will be marrying my partner of 15 years, uh, and all this joy, and coinciding with my retirement, I've done a lot of retrospection in the last few weeks. The AIDS part of it is like a I haven't addressed that. It's it's an elephant in there that's yeah. there. That uh, so like you. I mean, I think uh, probably not unlike what a lot of people that went through the Holocaust that don't didn't want to talk about it with their children. And uh, you know, it's something that uh, that made me think yeah. Yeah. a lot. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, so. um, and yeah, like you. Uh, I mean, I uh, I found. Uh, I mean, I'm a very lucky man. I've had all sorts of things happen, but I'm in a good place in my life. Always have been, always managed to luck or whatever, uh, keep a positive outlook. Uh, well, anyway, uh, just general comment about it. Thank you for, for your sharing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, and I'm interested also in that piece of your story about the AIDS crisis, but. And what I heard in your story was that you took action and you put yourself right at the nexus of the crisis. And yet, um, which is something I did as well. I, I came from out of town, so I, I was new to this community. Um, and um, I did it as a volunteer for Shanti Project. But um, did you find there was any meaning or not Yeah, yeah, there was. However, my, uh, I only took action after it was over. Uh, I until 1994, I uh, I worked in the arts, and um, uh, and and people were dropped, were dying around me like flies, and uh, and I was and um, on a certain level, I was pretending it wasn't even happening. I was denying that it was happening, even though they were people who were very, very close to me. Uh, and it was it was only it was only after uh, uh, then after that, and it was it was just coincidence that I happened to end up working for the Gay and Lesbian Center. It was it was literally just all of a sudden there was this job available, and and if I may, uh, at the time I took the job, I remember saying that, gee, I guess I could do that, that I've always thought of my sexual orientation as being one of the least interesting things about me. And so uh, uh, involving myself with the gay community was something that, um, that um, at that point in my life just didn't even occur to me. I'm so grateful that um, the opportunity presented itself because I found out that um, there was an opportunity to do something that had um, 
I had selfishly not considered. Uh, I, part of the subtext of what I'm of of, of my uh, Dharma talk too is the fact that at a certain point along the journey, I realized that the fact that it was not traumatic for me did not mean that it was that it was similarly not traumatic for others. That many people were not just harmed, they were disabled by it. I'm not talking about HIV, I'm talking about being gay. Uh, especially working for the Gay and Lesbian Center, I encountered people that could never get a job working anywhere. I mean, they were, uh, and, and not just because they were gay, but because they were, their brains were ripped out. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were helpless. That they were so miserable, they were so unhappy, they were, uh, uh, and and that was a, that was an epiphany to me, uh, because that was my experience, and uh, uh, and it, it was a really a, a wake up call, realizing that well, gee, you know, of course, and, and especially working with with kids, you know, who were living homeless on the streets of Los Angeles that we provided uh, services to. Um, it, Things like that were almost it was inconceivable to me that there was that you know, that was my culture. Yeah, I like something that you said right at the beginning about um, life not being that different, but yet being positive or having like um, feeling very fortunate, where a lot of people feel very can kind of come through the same process and feeling very negative. Um, and you even said, like, at points in your life, you're looking back and would describe it as having been very difficult at different points in your life. What do you think is different that makes it? That well, I think I think it's two things. One, I think that I was given the gift of of having a high opinion of myself, and so whatever happened to me, I. I was very disinclined to take personally, mm -hmm. uh, because whoever that person was was not me. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know that whoever that you, whoever it was you you're hating was not me, and um, and 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 then the the other the other you know, one of the other factors I was always I was often clever enough to figure out how to work my way out of difficult situations, um, and it wasn't as bad. You know, I wasn't, as a matter of fact, I remember after I came out to my mother, uh, we were having a conversation about what life was like for uh, other gay people and, and, you know, revealing to her that people were thrown away by their parents was, you know, it was unthinkable to her. And I thought, and I remember saying to her, well, it happens a lot, you know, parents do it all the time. But it was, you know, to, and, 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 I, and that was the context in which I was functioning was that you know I didn't necessarily want to tell her, but it would, it never occurred to me that well you know when I ultimately did that that she was going to say well I never want to see you again. As a matter of fact, um, um, her immediate reaction I'm sure many of you has have had similar experiences. Her immediate reaction was, and I, I wasn't living in California at the time I was living in the East Coast. She said. She said, I've been trying to think of what it was that I might have done. And I said, Mother, this is not about you. You 
you know, which I, you know, I don't know if that, I don't know if that helped her or not, helped her or not, but <laughs> yes. Um, have you ever had any struggles with addiction or felt out of control in your life? No. And I and uh, I'm sorry. That's a short answer. And and as a matter of fact, my brothers, uh, uh, my brothers and I have had conversations about that. That um, the possibility that there is some sort of, of um, threshold that we never go past with um, with substance with substances that we never experience the, um, the euphoria that perhaps other people experience and therefore don't get caught up in, in um, that we're able to play with it. So even when you were doing drugs, you didn't feel out of control with that? Never. Never. Yeah. Do you think that has, I mean, I know you fairly well, do you think that has to do with just getting bored with things? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, well, yeah, I've done it, been there, done that, yeah, probably. I, as a matter of fact, um, with, with, with LSD, the reason I stopped taking LSD, LSD is not particularly addictive, but when I was taking LSD, um, the, uh, uh, the reason I stopped taking it was because God started talking to me. And I knew that that was a very, very dangerous sign. <laughs> yeah. I think what you're describing a lot of is resilience. And I wonder, does your brother have similar... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we're... Cut out it. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's really as I've, as I've gotten older. One of the things that's almost bizarre when we get together, it's like we're three copies of the same thing. You know, that the way we the way we interact, the things that we think that are funny. Uh, it's like it's like spin. It's I mean, it's a sort of a bizarre thing to say, but in some ways, it's like spending time with myself. You know, being with one of my brothers, you know, having a conversation with one of my brothers, it's, it's, you know, about, about as good as it gets. And I and I know that that's, and I know that most people don't get that too. You know, that that's a, uh, you know, very very rare gift. Yeah. Uh, would you be willing to say something about how your meditation practice, specifically meditation, has evolved over the years? useful. Oh, I don't think it has evolved over the years. I've just started. Uh, I, I came for uh, I came for a, for a year right after leaving Stop AIDS Project. Then I left and I went to Northern California for two years. Then I had another job in, 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 San, in San Francisco. When I left there I came back to GBF. So I've only been back for a year. So um, I haven't even started. I haven't even started. Uh, I'm 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 very aware of what it does for me when I do it, but it hasn't uh, it hasn't uh, um, I haven't even given it a chance yet, 
and 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 so I and and I'm I'm very uh, disinclined to say that it is is or is not going to do anything. I'm I'm very I, I take that back. I know it's going to be a powerful force in my life, uh, but I don't know what that's going to be like. Yeah. Yeah, I was I had a conversation a while ago with friends that were around my age, our age, and um, we were talking about how for our generation at this day and age, just because it's just assumed that one step in the process to where we are now is to go through this period of shame and uh, uh, self doubt and self dislike, and you have to, and we have to work our way through that. Five years later, um, so no, honestly, I'm. Good for you for not going through that. I, uh, that's probably one of the few gay men of, your, of our age that said that you, you weren't really touched by that. Because I remember when I was a young man, that's the only message that was out there. It was right. a hateful, ugly yeah. message, and there was nothing, well, nothing counter, counterbalancing yeah. that. Yeah, I won't say that I didn't go through it, but I didn't stay there long. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it had. And, and there's any number of reasons for that, you know, not the least of which were the way I the way I grew up, you know. Um, I, uh, I, I I was arrested more than that one time that I happened to well, mention. Uh, I know. <laughs> well, were you arrested like what time? Maybe it's the first two personal questions. I know, like public sexism or that. No, I no, I wasn't doing anything. I was I was I, I was I was on the street. Somebody had pulled their car over. I was going to get in. The car sped off. The police came over and um, interrogated me. But I was but on, on on a number of other occasions I was in clubs and, and places like that. And I was not nearly as docile as I was at eight, as at nineteen. Uh, I. I, I, you know, let them know and under no uncertain terms that they did not have my permission to uh, treat me the way that they were treating me, and um, and I know, you know, that that came from the way I grew up. You know? That's great because uh, going back to what I was saying before, uh, it's an amazing concept to think that the young gay and lesbians, like you know, just coming out right now, they're just devoid of shame. I know. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's almost. I can almost not even consider Thank God, that. huh? Yeah, oh, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I just that they don't start our life with this crushing burden that so many of us in our generation Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Yeah. I was surprised to hear where, when you said uh, that when you went to a psychiatrist or whatever, at UCLA, that the person was enlightened enough to tell you can that you it believe was your that? problem. I remember very distinctly, uh, I was already in grad school, opened the New York Times the day that the American Psycho Psych Psychological Association, in 1973 or 4, that, that, that where homosexuality was officially taken off the being yeah, or whatever that, that list of, uh, uh, you know, so I, I never got to go for counseling, but uh, I did have a long, lonely struggle like, yeah, most of all the, because up until that point, I mean, this was one of those times when I remember, oh, maybe, maybe it's not me, maybe I'm not yeah. wrong, but yeah. it was, it, it was, was later yeah, no, it was, it was a luck of the draw, well, I mean, think about having a, ther I had a therapist for a year who was on the faculty of, of American Baptist Seminary of the West in Covina, who counts? Who counseled me on 
the necessity of my coming to terms with my sexual orientation and letting other people know about it. This is 1969. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Baptist. And Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you for your beautiful talk. Very heartfelt and um, very um, just present. I, I like what you had to say and how you had to say it. I just had a question. Um, what's your hometown? Where did you grow up? Which part I grew country? up in Woodland Hills. Oh, so Southern California. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I was so struck when you said that uh, now you don't see yourself doing art or right. wanting to do art. My, my feeling is that art is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. <laughs> do you, uh, what are your tastes in art? You're doubtless, you're, you, are, you are doubtless correct. And what I need to do is get over myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to chime And with any, any luck, I will. <laughs> I have to chime in on that one because I think any, any artist who dares to think of themselves as good or bad is completely disabled. Yes. Immediately, I mean, yeah. you can't think that yeah. way. Yeah. You have to think, yeah. This is some generous yeah. meta yeah. activity that I do for myself. Yeah. First and foremost, yeah. that helps me understand the world, and then everything else beyond that is bonus. Yeah. I may have spent too many years in preparation. <laughs> what form of art did you do? I'm sorry. What form of art did you do? I. I. I uh, uh, I, I tried music at one point, but I'm, I'm not particularly gifted. Um, I, uh, I write uh, poetry, uh, short stories. Hmm. But I also really want to reiterate the thanks for speaking about that period of the epidemic and the loss that so many of us went through. And I made work during that time ostensibly trying to process it. So I was, I thought I was dealing with it, but I still feel like it is, it is a, a monster that I can't wrap right. my mind around. Um, no. So I appreciate that no. very much. No. No, you're right. Do you still play the piano? I do, I do. Um, and it, as a matter of fact, talk about meditation. It's meditation. Uh, when I when I play, I go into a different space, and I I can feel my biorhythms coming down, or whatever whatever it is that's supposed to happen. <laughs> and once and once I'm finished, uh, it's like uh, you know now I can do whatever I want to do for the rest of the day. You referred to one of your professional activities as soul crushing. Yes. What was it about it? That was soul crushing. Oh God, that's a long <laughs> that's a long conversation. Working for the federal government in general was soul crushing. Well, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I had a job in particular uh, because of the nature of what the federal government does. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people who do nothing but determine how much money and how many people it takes to do something else. And that was my job. My job was to determine how many people and what kinds of people do you need in order to do what tasks. And it was just, it was, it like, it made me crazy. It just made me crazy. 
I would, you know, I, I, matter of fact, I used to, I used to, say, I, I worked for the military, and I used to send memos to the to the uh, generals saying, my recommendation is that you fire all of us and make the make the officers responsible for getting the job done that they have been assigned, and if they don't, then you get rid of them. And then they would, and then they got. <laughs> and they would say, and they, now I put that in the suggestion box, and then they would respond to it because they have to. Somebody's got to. So they would say, you know, thank you very much for your suggestion. We're not going to follow the rumor, you know, whatever. But it was. But I used to, I used to think, God, I wish I, I wish I could have been sitting there and you know, going through the process that they were going through. I'm sure they thought, you know, how can we get rid of this guy? And I ultimately, I am. Uh, Exactly. Yes. Yeah, please speak about your time with the um, in the monastery. Oh wow, um, that was wonderful. Um, I, I was I, I was raising money for them. Uh, they uh, it's a, it's a long story. Uh, it, may, it may even be a Dharma talk. I don't know. But they um, they were re, they were rebuilding a building in Northern California out of stones that William Randolph first brought to San Francisco in the 1930s. And uh, they were about half the way into the project. It, it did not look like it was anywhere near completion. And they hired me to come in and uh, assist them in raising money for it. And I did what I could do. I actually did a pretty damn good job for them. But what was, what was wonderful about it was just being with them, um, you know, being with people who spend their entire day thinking about God, and 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 if you will, you know, I don't know. I didn't have any conversations with them because there was no reason for them to talk with me about it. But I think that when they were talking about God, they were talking in much more um, abstract terms. Than we that we that we uh, perhaps think of what you know what God is about. They were talking about connecting with the cosmos, and uh, their work. Uh, they they pray eight times a day. Um, they uh, and the work that they do is prayer. So all they do all day long is pray, and or meditate, if you will. What what kind of community? Uh, what was uh... Order. The order. Okay. The order was a cistercian. On that note, we do have to close. Maybe people can talk to Bob after. But do we have any announcements for the week? Good cast on your house tonight. Please stay and enjoy the fellowship of the salsa. There's some treats, some hot water for tea, and some If you have tea, please wash your um, I'll be coming around with the example. Um, please um, feel free to generate, to donate what you can and what you need to to help the sangha meet its expenses. Five to eight dollars is recommended. Some people gather at the front door for um, lunch. Oh, there's a sign
Street Center. And it's very rewarding. And we've been doing it for, for five or six years now. And uh, it's interesting. We do it once a week, the third Saturday of the month. And just uh, we find the menu, buy the food, and prepare the food there in the kitchen. And uh, the, the young people there are very appreciative. If you want if that's something that sounds interesting, maybe you can uh, corner me out there and uh, give me your contact information. I can't remember where it is. Maybe you can just add, add a nice. It's. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's lovely spending time with. Uh, with our brothers, you know, having having some time doing something that's completely different, and uh, it's good, healthy work, um, and it and it and it feels like uh, making a difference. Those, uh, and, you know, and many of the, these kids are kids who uh, are um, yeah, have been thrown away by their families, yeah. and you and and you experience them, and you understand. <laughs> Why the hell they would have been thrown away by their families? Because they're not easy people. Some of them are not. Yeah, some of them are wonderful. Some of them are wonderful. Yeah, the ones who come up and talk to us are wonderful. Yeah, but there's another three quarters of them that were probably just. Yeah. Yeah, I have been asking since concerning the uh, Supreme Court Doma and Puppy decisions. Mm -hmm. You may have heard that there's this 28-day period during which it, uh, the decision can be um, up, appealed, and a group in Arizona decided to do that. Part of their name has to do with defending freedom, which is yes. a misnomer yeah. if I've ever heard one. But, but I heard uh, about an hour before we convened today, Justice Kennedy, decided to uh, not accept their claim for an appeal. Wow. And he did so without comment. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like fuck you to me. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering if we could have a dharma talk sometime about Buddhist weddings. Is there anybody that uh, you know would do a Buddhist wedding for same-sex couple? Sure. Great. We'll look into it. I will volunteer myself and my partner for that. I mean, that well, I asked for it. There's any number of places that we could inquire about that. Who's next, please? We have a small discussion. Yes, open discussion. Shall we join for closing? By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast 
like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.